If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn in them with me once again to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. If you are visiting with us, we are uh, not studying the book of 1 Samuel as an entire book, uh, but we are studying uh, the life of David, one of the significant characters in the book of 1 Samuel. Of course, his life bleeds into 2 Samuel as as well. And after a week break last week, as we welcome David Burney, our UF minister at University of Washington, into this pulpit, Uh, Today we find ourselves just a a little bit further along chronologically in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel. Uh, I think I've told you this a couple times. Eventually we're going to take some big jumps forward uh, in the book of 1 Samuel and get into 2 Samuel pretty quickly. But for now we're kind of working our way incrementally just because uh, these stories are so good and uh, they teach us so much, it's hard to, to skip some in favor of others. But um, yeah, this series may turn into a two-year series. I don't know what's going to happen, but uh, we'll see how that all works itself out. Um, just to rem- remind you, bring you up to speed where we are in the life of David, in this story that we're following, in this life that we're following, uh, David is running from the murderous Saul, the crazy out of his mind, murderous Saul who wants to kill David. And so David is wandering in the wilderness, and yet in the wilderness, what's happening? He is finding God. He's finding God's provision, even in the wasteland of his surroundings. And that in and of itself is something for us to grab a hold of, isn't it? Wilderness wandering is is not pleasant for any of us. Maybe some of you this morning feel that you are wandering in a figurative wilderness. It's never pleasant, but it is also never accidental. We may not choose it, but God certainly does use it. It's nothing new for God's people either. Wilderness wandering has been a fixture in the life of God's people. It was for Israel. Remember all the years they spent prior to the promised land? Remember Jesus? We'll look at that story in just a moment. Jesus in the wilderness himself, driven there by the Holy Spirit. So this morning we come to a wilderness scene. It's an exciting wilderness scene in the life of David. It takes place in Engedi, this small, craggy oasis on the western border of the Dead Sea. For those of you who are geographically minded, I invite you to listen as I read. And as is our custom here at Ascension, if you are able, we ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And so stand with me. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 through 22. 1 through 22. Listen as I read. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. 
Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes, behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today and in my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, see, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. And whom has the King of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I for you have repaid me good whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me. And that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Quite a story. This morning as we work our way through this passage, as we talk a little bit about what's happening in the life of David and what the Lord might want to teach us, I'd like us to frame our hearts on two things, a practical admonition and an equally practical encouragement. And we'll start with the admonition, and it's this, don't try to shortcut God's work. Don't try to shortcut God's God's work. 
Ours is a day and age, a time and a place, a when and a where, when it's never been easier or more desirous to cut corners, right? I'm guilty of this myself. We want the the easy way. We want the efficient path. Get me there and get me there quick. Anybody remember Cliff Notes? I think now they're they're obsolete. They're called Spark Notes now. You didn't have to read Romeo and Juliet in English class. You just get the booklet. You save a ton of time and an equal amount of boredom, and you get the job done. We've got diet pills and exercise equipment, promising big things without a lot of sweat. Right? We want the key. That special insight, that breakthrough technique. We've even got shortcuts on our computers and on our handheld devices so we don't have to overclick in order to get things accomplished. Now, of course, I'm not wholesale throwing out the value of shortcuts as if they are inherently wrong. They aren't. They're helpful and even needed in some situation. But here's the thing. David reminds us here that in the life of following God, the shortest And the quickest path is often the opposite of what the Lord is after. Let me try to show this to you. As we pick up the story this morning, David has been found. And that's not a good thing. Saul's scouts have successfully located his his general whereabouts, and so Saul gathers about 3,000 essentially special forces And they're on their way to find David, to deal with this nuisance. From a human standpoint, it's just not looking good for David. He's outnumbered five to one with no time and nowhere to run. All he can do is hide. Luckily, there are plenty of options in Engedi. And Getty is this tangle of, of rock formations. You can Google it, look at pictures of it. There's actually some really beautiful pictures of Engedi. It's a great place to hide. And so he and his men tuck themselves deep into one of these caves in order to wait out Saul and his men and their search and their canvassing of the area. Now you think as we're reading this story, that Saul's advance team, that they would have at least cleared the caves that the king might wander into, right? That's something that seems like it would be an important thing to do, but apparently they didn't. And so of all the caves that Saul could go into, he chooses the one cave where David is tucked away with his men. What are the chances? And what exactly is Saul doing when he goes into this cave? Well, the Hebrew literally says that Saul is going into a cave to cover his feet. That's a Hebrew euphemism for, I think you get the picture. When do you cover your feet if you're going to relieve yourself? 
So he probably walks into this cave, he takes off his robe, he probably throws it to the far side of the cave to kind of get it away from him as he covers his feet and squats to do his business. Now let's just stop there just a moment because I know I got the attention of the kids. (laughs) This is the Bible, right kids? This is quite a scene. I mean, we've got drama, we've got suspense, and we've got even a little, a little comedy for good measure. Don't you love God's word? This is, this is raw and real. This is just real life, this scene. So put yourself into this cave. Put yourself in David's shoes or any of his men's shoes. This man who has come into the cave, this man tried to spear you in his house twice. Because of this man, your family is displaced from their home and they're in hiding in Moab because of him. He's now in hot pursuit of you, having recently slaughtered an entire town Because they helped you. Oh, and one more thing. God has told you that you are his replacement. What would you do if you were David? I'll tell you what I'd do. I suspect you'd do the same thing. What I'd do is I'd read God's providence just like David's men did. This is it. Justice has come to us. Yahweh has opened the door. He has handed our enemy to us. We've literally got him with his pants down. In Christianese, we say, God's opened the door. We just got to walk through it. But what happens? David won't do it. In fact, he is adamant that no one do anything. Verse 7 says, David persuaded his men with these words. The English translation isn't quite strong enough there because there's a much stronger word used here, a word that means to tear apart. In other words, David essentially tore into his guys. Don't you touch Saul. Why did he say those things? What did his words reveal? What they revealed, as one commentator sums it up, was a high royal theology. Despite all the terrible things, the horrible things that Saul has done, Saul is still the king. He is still the Lord's anointed. He is set apart by God for that role, to be respected and honored, not slaughtered at first chance. David hasn't been given the right. He hasn't been given the green light to kill Saul. And even though his death and his throne are promised to him, David will not take the shortcut. So David doesn't cut corners, but he does literally cut a corner. He takes a piece of Saul's royal robe as proof of what he could have done as a way to press his case for his innocence. 
for his mercy. But even in this trimming of Saul's robe, that that itself pricks David's conscience. He doesn't think he should have even done that because that was an act of revolt. It was an unnecessary challenge to Saul's kingship. So what exactly is going on in this crazy scene? I think what we're seeing is I think we're seeing David reflecting his heart for God's heart. Right? That's one of the descriptors of David. He's a man after God's own heart. Sometimes we see it in vivid color. Other times, hang on for next week, not so much. But here, David is reflecting a heart that won't be seduced by shortcuts, but will patiently obey God's commands as he follows God's timetable. And in reflecting God's heart, you know who David's also reflecting? He's reflecting a king to come. Remember Jesus' time in the wilderness, that place that the Spirit drove him to? Let me remind you. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, that is Jesus, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Just like David, Jesus knew that the kingdom was his. He knew the prophecies. He knew what lied ahead of him at the cross. And he could shortcut all of that. The betrayal, the abandonment, the agony, But no, Jesus wouldn't shortcut the Father's work, but He would walk the road that God had placed before Him. And in the garden in just three years' time from this wilderness scene of Jesus, as He pleaded for another way to accomplish the Father's will, Jesus would pray to the Father, not my will, but Your will be done. Thanks be to God that Jesus didn't shortcut God's work. So how do we think about applying this to our lives? Well, the first way is to rejoice and rest in the work of Jesus. To see and to savor Jesus through the life of David here. Without his resolve to walk in the Father's will, without his obedience that led him to the cross, you and I are hopeless. But we gather this morning because we aren't hopeless. Because Jesus did see it through. He has paid the price. And because of that work, his mercy, God's mercy, is ours. But I think there's another application to this, and it's cultivating patience in our lives, patience in our walk with the Lord, whether it be on a a societal, cultural scale with issues 
like justice or whether it be on a personal level in your own walk with Jesus, in your own sanctification, in the own process of God making you holy, we can be tempted at times to, I just want to make things happen. Let's get it done. Let's get this over with. Even at times we might, as David's men did here in the cave, we might misread God's providence in order to justify our own actions. And this scene here reminds us that we need to be careful. We need to be prayerful. Paul said to the Roman church in Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. I confess, and and my wife can testify to this, that I can be at times an impulsive guy an impatient guy. And she's always reminding me to slow down, to pray, rather than feeling this urgency to act and to just get it done. See, Paul prayed for the church in this regard in Philippians 1. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment so that you may be able to approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And so I think one of the direct applications of this passage is the fact that efficiency isn't always paramount in the Christian life. God doesn't always want to do things quickly. Sometimes more time is precisely what's needed You know, David will write of this in Psalm 37. It's been one of the fun things of working through the life of David is seeing how possibly some of these psalms and songs were inspired by the events of his life. And perhaps Psalm 37 was one such psalm as he reflected on this time in the cave. Listen to some of these verses from Psalm 37. Verse 7, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in the way. Verse 9, The evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Verse 34, Wait for the Lord and keep his way. You see, David had an opportunity in that cave, but he knew that it was a shortcut to doing what God wanted to do. And so instead, he didn't allow the pressures of the present to negate the providence of God. Rather, he trusted God's timing. He reflected God's mercy. And he also knew what our second truth declares to us this morning, and that's where we'll close. Yahweh will make things right. Yahweh will make things right. You see, that truth in and of itself is fuel for obeying the first truth. 
At the end of the day, this is our hope. This is our certainty. And this is where David's confidence lies. He doesn't need to make things happen. Because Yahweh will do what needs to be done. Getting back into our text this morning, verse 12, he makes clear that the sparing of Saul's life was not because Saul was guiltless. He says this, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. Now let's be clear about this. David is not turning a blind eye to the slaughter of the priests in the city of Nob. He is not indifferent, nor is he passive. He simply entrusted all of that into the Lord. The Psalter is full of what one commentator calls, I like this phrase, the high temperature prayers of David. Have you ever prayed a high temperature prayer? Let me give you an example, a few examples from the Mouth of David, Psalm 54, 4 and 5. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil put to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. Psalm 58, 6. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Psalm 139, 19 and 20. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Those are high temperature prayers. There's a story in church history told of the death of James Guthrie in the 17th century who was hanged on a cross and beheaded by the English Parliament, and his fellow Christians prepared his headless body for burial. Some of the women, they dipped their cloth napkins in the blood of his body. And they were accused by some of superstition. What are you guys doing? And this was their reply. We intend not to abuse it to superstition or idolatry, but to hold that bloody napkin up to heaven with our address that the Lord would remember the innocent blood that is spilt. The point is this, brothers and sisters, our job is not to right every wrong but we do have an invitation to bring those wrongs to the Father with the confidence that He will make all things right. Paul will instruct the church again in Rome, in Romans 12, 19, a church that was eager to take matters into their own hands. He says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is hard to do. 
This is hard to do, to cast our victimization with with the hands of faith into God's hands. But again, our Savior, Jesus, shows the way and gives us the power. 1 Peter 2, He was reviled, but He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Yahweh will make things right. Well, the effect of, of David's dramatic mercy there in the cave, it affects even Saul. In one of his clearer moments, as Saul thinks about What David has done, the innocence of David becomes clear and the future of his certain kingdom becomes clear in Saul's mind. In this text, we even have, after many instances of Saul calling him the son of Jesse, now in verse 16 of chapter 24, he calls him by name, David. But if you know the story of David, you know that it won't last, that this truce is a temporary one. Notice David doesn't go back home with Saul. He goes back to his stronghold. He knows there will be more craziness to come, but he trusts that the Lord will sort that out. Brothers and sisters, let God's word comfort and instruct you this morning. I I don't know precisely what you need to hear from 1 Samuel chapter 24. Perhaps perhaps you're trying to, to rush out of your wilderness prematurely, whatever that may be. Perhaps you're trying to, to fix something that you can't, and it's not yours to fix. Remember this, in a world full of shortcuts, the Lord invites you to wait. And in a world full of injustice, rest assured, justice is coming. Yahweh will make all things right. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word once again, for the life of David for the good, the bad, for today, for the good, for the reflection of our Savior, the one who set his face to Jerusalem and and set his mind to walking in your will, Father, in accomplishing your purposes for his life and and not desiring to, to shortcut or shortchange that in any way. Father, give us the grace to wait upon you, to walk patiently with you. Give us the eyes of faith to see what it is you're doing, to to know what, what it is you're accomplishing in and through us. Father, and we thank you for the hope, the hope of not just a risen Lord seated at your right hand, but a risen Jesus coming again in justice and in power. 
and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that indeed He is Lord and there is no other. Until then, I pray, build up your church. Deepen our faith. Deepen our understanding of your love, of your truth. This I pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.